We're looking at the story of Daniel. You may have forgotten, but that's where we're going to be at um, intermittently here through a lot of the summer probably. And I want us to remember that the book of Daniel and the story of Daniel takes place in the context of God's chosen people being in captivity in the Babylonian Empire. And that's what we're looking at. And from the viewpoint of the people, you can only imagine what they might have been thinking. They've spent 70 years in captivity. 70 years. From their perspective, it must have looked endless, hopeless, probably crazy, as they're trying to figure out what in the world the God that they have been worshiping is doing. But as I thought about that, I'm thinking about how I feel here today and so many of us may feel living in the world we live in, how similar it is and how similar it can feel. Man, it's, it's so depressing if you let it be that to watch the news, to see what's going on. Every day it seems like there's more horror stories. And it seems almost without exception, every one of them stories is stomping on the word of God. Truth has become meaningless. As a matter of fact, purveyors of truth, which is hopefully all of us, are becoming the enemy in the eyes of the world, even as we speak truth. The world says they're all about free speech unless it's truth. They don't want to hear that. Hopeless, confusing, never-ending, frightening. All of these things could be said about what's going on in our world today. And the thought that I have and what I want to share about today is it would be so much easier, better, if we could see what's going on from God's perspective. We say things like God knows what's going on and God's never surprised and God's in control. But do we live and act and think like that when it comes right down to us in our personal lives, the things that we face, or in the things that we face in this country as a nation. I'm going to share a story, first of all. It's a little more contemporary than the story of the exile that we're seeing in Daniel. But for a lot of you that are a couple decades younger than me, it's going to still seem like ancient history. And it's a little bit of a long story, but I think it makes the point that what we're talking about and God moving behind the scenes isn't something that took place just a long time ago. And the title of my message this morning as we continue in this Heaven Rules series, the title of the message is simply um, God Behind the Scenes. What is he doing behind the scenes? God isn't a hands-off God, but he's not also a control freak God. He gave man and women free will. But he is always going to be working. Now, not everything happens in this world and in our lives is something he's called to have happen. A lot of the things we do are just our own consequences of our behavior, of the things we experience. And we can never forget we have a devil out there who's always trying to steal, kill, and destroy. But whether it's us doing silly things or the devil doing completely evil things, God's plans are always going to prevail. And that's what I want us to focus on. The story I'm going to share took place back in 1937. Yes, that was even before my time, 1937. 
1937, and actually of October of 1937, trainloads of people started across the continent of Africa. Excuse me, Russia. If you want to put this up here. Now, some of you may not even remember it being called the USSR, the United Soviet Socialist Republic, or the United Socialist Soviet Republic, one or the other. I don't even remember. But it was a time in 1937 we're way over, if you look way over on the lower right-hand corner of what's the Soviet Union, you see the city of Vladivostok. In that particular city, in that part of Russia, the furthest eastern part of Russia, there was a very, very, very large Korean population. And by this time, the Soviet Union had gotten very large. A lot of the countries that some of you think have been around forever They were all part of the Soviet Union back then, Latvia, Lithuania, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, you could go on and on. All of them were part of the Soviet Union. And Stalin was in charge. He was the dictator. And Stalin, like so many dictators, was evil, and he was paranoid. And in his mind, all of those Koreans living in that part of Russia were probably spies, spies for Japan, China. And if they weren't spies, they were certainly harboring spies. So in his paranoia, he decided, we need to exile all of them from that part of the world and take them over 4,000 miles over here, closer to where we see the sea, Tashkent, actually in countries we would now call Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. 4,000 miles. He moved 170,000 Korean people. And during that trip, and shortly thereafter, somewhere between 15,000 and 50,000 died of exposure and starvation and not being able to adapt as they relocated to Central Asia, 4,000 miles from where they'd been living and the only home they knew. And he did this because in his paranoia, he thought they were all spies and harboring spies. When they got there, the children were immediately starting to be indoctrinated into the Russian culture by primarily learning the Russian language. And over time, the Korean exiles became more and more a part of the Russian people they were in the midst of, but they were always thought of as second-class citizens, and they always faced racial put-downs and and just did not get the breaks that the normal people got, even in the Soviet Union. Now we're going to jump ahead a whole 50 years. Hopefully some of you might remember Mikhail Gorbachev. Anybody remember Mikhail Gorbachev? Okay, I'm still talking to us older people. (laughs) But when Mikhail Gorbachev was in power, and Ronald Reagan was our president, the Cold War had been going on for a long time. And things were getting terrible in Russia, and he decided we needed to make some changes. So some of the changes he made, there was two different things, and these are terms that my age might remember, something called perestroika. Perestroika was Gorbachev realizing they needed to change the economic structure in their nation. Communism was not working the way it should. So they changed the the way the economy worked. Private enterprises started to pop up. And then there was another thing, another term they used was glasnost. And this was the opening of the social structure. Before this, before Gorbachev, Russia was a closed country. 
in the late 1880s and 1980s, when this began to change, lots of the Russia was becoming more and more open, including those Central Asia countries that we now call Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan. And at the very same time this was taking place, this perestroika and this glasnost, simultaneously there was a major revival taking place in South Korea. People were getting saved in South Korea by the thousands, and the church in South Korea was exploding. And as the South Korean church exploded and grew, there became a greater and greater desire to send out missionaries. And they started sending missionaries into Russia and into the other countries that no longer were part of Russia. And as the missionaries always, when they go to foreign countries, you face a lot of barriers, the cultural barriers, language barriers, all of these things. But as they got into the Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan area, these South Korean missionaries were suddenly and surprisingly made aware of the fact that now there were hundreds of thousands of ethnic Koreans part of the Russian population in those two, two nations. And they were very, very desirous, of, desiring of getting some of their original Korean cultural back in, and they found a group of people that were hungry and open for the gospel. And thousands and thousands and thousands of these Korean, ethnic Koreans in Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan accepted Christ. And because of their being a part of the Russian community or the Uzbek community, the Kazakh community, because of their contacts, many, many others became Christians. What was happening during that exile? Where was God in the midst of something that seemed absolutely horrible? A few years ago, we did a, a series and we did Bible studies on the story. And in the story, those of you who were part of that may remember, they referred to an upper story and a lower story. And the lower story was the story that we see as our perspective here on earth. And the upper story was the story that God was causing to play out from the heavens. What was God's upper story? Could it be in a lot of things that are even taking place today in our world? And certainly were taking place in the time of Daniel and the exile of God's people there. God was at work bringing about a redemptive story where hundreds of thousands of people accepted Christ. From God's perspective, it looks so different than it does from our perspective. I wanted to share that story primarily because at least we know, even though it seems ancient history to some of us, it's New Testament. It's since the New Testament. God's active in the world today just like he was in the Old Testament. He's the same, always has been, always will be. We're going to look at Daniel chapter 1 this morning. And Daniel chapter 1, we can clearly see very easily the perspective from the people that had been exiled, the country, the people of Judah. I'm going to start reading a few of the verses. We're looking at it. I'm just going to make a few comments as we work our way through chapter 1. 
And it starts out when you get to Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. It's kind of like a news flash to catch your attention. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. We see the time frame. We see what's happening. And in chapter 2, it says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Verse 3, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of the officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. We learn right away what was taking place. But if you read that too quickly, you might miss a very significant fact. It tells us that they were besieged, Jerusalem was conquered. Even some of the things we'll see from the temple of God or God's place of worship were taken. It says this in verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim. Now that may rattle some of our religion, but the Lord gave these people, his people, over to this pagan nation, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. And if you read more of the story and you understand what's going on, God had gotten to the place he was kind of fed up with his people, always turning his back on them. So as a nation, he was going to discipline them to bring them back to himself. And when God disciplines, he's always doing it to restore, to bring back to himself, whether it's a nation or individuals. God isn't pouring out his wrath. He is disciplining his children. And sometimes it's painful. Oftentimes, they don't understand what's taking place. Neither do we. And he tells them to bring back some of these young men from these aristocratic families. In other words, he's saying, bring back some of the finest of this people we're bringing into exile. And he goes on in in verse 4. He says, bring back these youths in whom there is no defect, who are good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered them to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter into the king's personal service. He's taking some of the very best. And it doesn't say it this way, but it's almost as if he's manipulating or trying to manipulate them to help them forget about their culture, forget about what they had when they were back in Jerusalem, forget about their God, forget about their race, forget about their religion. He's plying them with all of these amazing things. The people, the Babylonian people, they didn't get to come and eat the king's food. They didn't get to drink the king's wine. They didn't get the finest education available in the world, in the nation. They didn't get all that, but these guys were going to get all that. With the promise then, you're going to get a job, and not just any job, you're going to work in the king's court. So he's, he's, it's, 
like I said, to me, it's almost like I'm going to manipulate you. I'm going to get you to think a different way. I'm going to promise you all these things, and you're going to almost owe me. You're going to want to work for me. You're going to want to serve me. If we can just get all that, what we would call now the Jewish, get all that Jewish stuff out of your head and begin to learn, understand, speak, and think like a Babylonian. And you'll be amazing. In verse 6, part of this process was so complete that they gave them different names. In verse 6, it reads, Now among them, among these fine young aristocratic young men, boys, it says, Sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned them new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name of Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. There's a lot of significance to those names in their, in their Jewish or Hebrew, and also significance in them to the Babylonians. It's another message. But they wanted this to be so complete, they were even giving them a new name to help them become more like a Babylonian and think like a Babylonian. But in verse 8, there's a very significant statement that's made, one that we need to grab a hold of. Daniel had made up his mind. He had made up his mind he was not going to defile himself. In other words, he had made up his mind, no matter what temptations came his way, he was not going to abandon his faith. He was not going to defile himself before his God. He was going to hang on no matter what took place. And then in verse 9, it says this. And again, this is where we need to look to glimpse and to see what is God doing from his upper story. What's he doing behind the scene? It says in verse 9, God granted David, or excuse me, Daniel, favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. Why did he need this favor? Why did he need this compassion? Because he wasn't going to defile himself. In the previous verse, you could see the commander of the, the, this group that was overseeing them was, you got to do this. You can't defy the king because not only will it be bad for you, it's going to be really bad for me. But there was no way Daniel was going to go down that road. He had made up his mind, and it says God granted Daniel favor and compassion. God was working even when Daniel probably had no clue. And also it said in that verse when he confronted this commander that was supposed to take care of them, he did it very politely. He approached him and said, hey, here's the deal. He wasn't belligerent. He wasn't refusing a direct order. He was giving this option. Check us out. He sought permission from the commander. And then verses 10 through 16, which I'm not going to read all of them, he and the commander come to a place where Daniel says, I I tell you what. I understand. Obviously, we don't want to cause problems for you or us, but let's test this thing out. Feed us vegetables. Give us water. Don't make us eat the king's food, the king's wine. We don't want anything to do with any of that. And in 10 days, 
Compare us to everybody else that's eating all of that wonderful food and drinking that wonderful wine. And just see, just see who looks better. And this is what they did. This is what took place. And he tested him for 10 days. And at the verse 15, it says, at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and wine that they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. God's favor and compassion was upon them. They didn't just look as good as those that were eating the other foods. They looked better. So the commander had a real peace about letting them do what they were doing to honor their God. Verse 17. I want to back up a second. This, I think, is so important. When we're going through things, we sometimes get so wrapped up in the circumstances, we don't hardly have time to think or we don't have the emotional stability to think about, okay, wait a minute, what's going on here? Why could this be happening? Is there anything positive that could happen from this? And imagine if you're the case of these four young men, knowing that there's a whole nation of their, of their relatives that are being exiled, knowing all this is taking place, to realize the favor that they're getting. There's, a, there's a, a point here or a principle here I think that we need to grab hold of. It doesn't matter who's in charge. It doesn't matter who the authority is. It doesn't matter who the king is. It doesn't matter who the president is. It doesn't matter who the governor is. It doesn't matter who the dictator is. There is no hardened heart out there that God can't soften and change to bring about his purposes. No one, even if that person despises God, doesn't believe in God, or or does everything contrary to what God would have him to do, if God's got a plan, he can change the heart of any person, any person. And we see that taking place. It's kind of a behind-the-scenes thing here because we get wrapped up in Daniel's story and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's story. But we need to realize God is working And I'm pretty sure that these four young guys were probably going, wow, that was cool. Can't believe he agreed with us on that. I believe I almost fell off the stage. There's a a proverb, 21.1. Listen to what this says in regards to what I just shared. It says, a king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hands. He turns it wherever he wishes. King's heart is like channeled water in the hands of the Lord. He can turn it in every direction or any direction he wants. I'm sure if we were one of those four young men or part of the population exiled, we would not be looking at this and saying, wow, God, you're you're amazing. This is great. It's just like an extended 70-year vacation. Only we're exiles, we're prisoners in a foreign land. What good can come of this? Where is our God? Verse 17, God gave the four youths, again, God gave. God's working. He says, God gave the four youths knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. 
God gave them. God's hand was upon them. God was working behind the scenes, preparing them for what's going to come so that he would help them to achieve what he has planned for their future and their destiny and to fulfill God's purposes for an entire nation. God is working in the midst of this. And it's amazing to me to think about God's dealing with the whole nation. And yet in the midst of what's happening here, this 70 years of exile, God's plan includes four young guys. And he pays such attention to these four young guys. He's personally involved in what's going on in their lives. God cares about what's going on in every one of our lives. And he is at work in our lives, even when we don't see it and know it, quite frankly, even when we don't like it sometimes, because we don't understand what's going on. So the same God that rules nations, created the universe, working on four people, working in their lives. And the important thing I want to get across to us today is this is true about us also. This is true for us, every one of us. God gives us what we need when we need it to help us through whatever it is we're going through. Whether it's corporately or individually, God is at work. We don't always understand, but he's at work. He's preparing us for something that lies ahead. Something that could be so much greater than we would ever imagine. I'm sure when Daniel said, you know what, I'm not going to eat that food, he had no idea what that was going to lead to. His obedience, the favor that would come upon them, and what we'll see in the rest of the book of Daniel, how he was used so mightily by God to give God so much glory even among pagans in a pagan land. He's at work in each one of our lives When you look at what's going on in your own life or in the life of our nation, if you don't want to get that personal, what's taking place makes no sense sometimes. It seems absolutely, totally illogical. And at times it may be very painful, probably really confusing. We don't understand it. It's hard to think about the fact that there may be a bigger plan that I can't see because I am so emotionally involved in what's taking place that I'm forgetting to try to look at God's perspective, God's view. It's hard to realize that sometimes he's doing exactly what needs to be done in the midst of what may just be consequences of our foolish behavior or what could be the what's happening because of the attack of the enemy. God is going to have his purposes come to pass. And he's going to cause it to bring him glory. Put us in a position where we can give him glory. So what is our job in this whole process? If God's doing all this stuff behind the scenes, what's our job? I would offer it's probably the exact same thing that Daniel had to do. Trust God. Trust God. Trust his word, no matter what's going on. Who's our source? Who's our strength? Who's our deliverer? Trust God. I want to just share three more scriptures quickly. I think we're familiar with every one of them. 
First one's in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And it says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. God causes all things. That does not say God causes all things that happen to us. It may be the enemy or maybe me. But he says he will cause all things to work for good for those who believe, who love him. It's a promise. Trust him. Genesis 50, verse 20. Familiar story of the life of Joseph. You want to look at a life of someone who didn't look so good a whole lot of the time, who God used powerfully behind the scenes. This is a good one to look at. In verse 20, it says, As for you, this is Joseph speaking to his father and his brothers. He says, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people. I might take a little too much liberty sometimes with scriptures, but I would tell you, could just as well say, Satan might have intended this for evil, what the enemy is doing and the way he's attacking me or my family or our nation. But God will use it for his glory and for his good for those who believe. He promises. And the third one is in Jeremiah 29, 11. And Jeremiah 29, 11 is, again, a very familiar verse, but you may not remember that it's all in a prophetic word from Jeremiah about the exile of Judah into Babylon. And part of this is where Daniel gets a revelation at the end of, Bab- uh, end of the book of Daniel of the 70 years. It says this in this part of the prophecy of Jeremiah. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. There are so many scriptures that we can get such encouragement from. And at the very least and probably the very most, it needs to help us to learn to trust him. Trust him. What's going on in the nation? I can't figure it out. I don't understand. It makes no sense. It's so anti-God, but who's I trust in? There's terrible things happening in our own lives that seem terrible to us. They are hard. They're difficult. They're illogical. They're painful. They're frightening. Is God still in charge? Do you still trust him? Are you still the apple of his eye? Is he still preparing you for something greater that's coming down the road? My answer is yes. No matter what the situation is, we are covered by his love and care, by his grace and mercy. And we can be sure that this is true. He truly knows what's best for us. Now, it's easy to say those words, but man alive, when you're in the midst of it, that's hard to grab a hold of. How can this, that, or the other thing be the best for me? I don't know because I have such limited vision. I can't see in terms of eternity. I can't imagine those Koreans in those railroad cars, people freezing to death, starving to death on the way to a whole different location of 4,000 miles away, thinking, all right, God's at work. This is amazing. Thousands, hundreds of thousands, actually, were redeemed by this plan of God, the way he used it for his glory. Even though we're walking through these things, and I've said this, and I bet most of us had, this doesn't seem fair, and it hurts. God's still in control. I asked the question, 
Many of us have asked the question in one way or another. And I would guess the Jewish people asked the same question, even though God had warned them so many times. Why us? Why me? Why is this happening? You know, if you think of Daniel, they hadn't forsaken their God. Daniel and his three friends, they hadn't forsaken God. They hadn't denied God. They hadn't started living a a horrible lifestyle. They weren't into idolatry. But the nation itself was being punished for all those things. And they were part of that nation. Rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. It doesn't mean because all these horrible things are happening that all of us are horrible people. God's still going to watch over his people, his children. They were suffering just like the rest of the nation, but God's hand was on them. And they probably thought it was unfair. But I think most of us would understand and agree that it's oftentimes in those greatest times of distress in our own lives, those times when it seems more unfair than anything else, that God teaches us the most, that he reveals to us us himself and his character the most in the midst of those terrible, terrible, hard times. And as we're going forward in it and walking through it, it's hard to see how God's going to get the glory. But when we come out the other side and we look back, we discover that God has given us a position and a place to give him glory. It's amazing how God works. We need to trust him. Keep our eyes on him no matter what. God is working behind the scenes. I just want to close and encourage each of us as we're going through these things or if you get overwhelmed what's going on in this nation, we need to remind ourselves who God is, what his promises are. Just the reality that he can change any person's heart at any time if he so chooses. And when their hearts aren't changed, he's still going to accomplish his purpose and his plans. So what can we be doing? And in our personal lives, when we're going through difficult things, each of us individually or in a family, we need to come back to that same place, as hard as it may feel in our flesh, to realize, do I trust God or not? I don't understand. It's painful. It makes no sense. It seems so dark, I can't hardly believe there's ever going to be light again. God's God. I'm going to trust him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that the things that we've shared this morning resonate in our hearts and resonate in your heart, God, and that you will help us to, to see and understand. Give us your perspective and more things. God, I pray for some of us here that are going through very challenging times individually as families. God, that you would just reveal your love, your mercy, your grace in more powerful ways. God, give us a glimpse, if it be your will, to see what it is you're doing. Help us to see the upper story. Help us see this heaven rules mindset. God, I pray that the confidence we receive from you allows us to see our destiny come to pass and to see you receive glory and honor from all that we're walking through. I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.